holistically the life of the girl as you're trying you know describing also alice it can't just be about going to school and sitting in a classroom there's so much more to that girl's life that needs to be addressed hello and welcome to goal makers a podcast about world affairs and global development as told from the perspective of leaders experts and practitioners Goalmakers is produced by Global Washington, a network of nonprofit, for-profit, and funder organizations working to improve lives in low- and middle-income countries. To learn more, visit us at www.globalwa.org. I'm your host, Joel Myers, Director of Communications for Global Washington. Welcome to Episode 6 of Goalmakers. Today's discussion is about global quality education to advance gender equality. Over the years, education has focused on access and parity, closing the enrollment gap between girls and boys, while insufficient attention has been paid to retention and achievement and the quality and relevance of education. Providing quality and relevant education not only leads to improved enrollment and retention, but it also helps to ensure everyone is able to fully realize the benefits of education. Kristen Daly, Executive Director of Global Washington, introduces this session on how Global Washington members define quality education and how their education programs advance gender equality. First, I want to introduce uh, Laura Bearwolf, who is the Director of Operations at the Mona Foundation. Uh, she's been at the foundation for the past three years, and her previous positions include work for nonprofit organizations and major educational institutes. Her passion also includes supporting individuals in healthcare and community and develop development, which includes her past positions, and she has a deep commitment to service and also gender equality. Next, I want to introduce Alice Lamuno, who is the founder and executive director of Voices of Children's Faith in Northern Uganda. And Alice was born and raised in Acholi, the Acholi tribe of Northern Uganda, where she experienced herself living in poverty. Then she moved to the United States in 1996 and became a successful businesswoman in the childcare industry. And because of her connections and because of her uh, strong roots, she decided to start funding educational scholarships back in her hometown in 2010. And this started reaching 40 girls to go to boarding school and then led to this fantastic nonprofit that she founded that you'll hear more about in a moment. Next, I want to introduce Shoshone Tama Sweet who's the Director of International Programs and Transition Partners at Alliance for Children Everywhere. Shoshone has worked in a number of countries around the world, in particular in Africa, and his work has include humanitarian relief, refugee support, healthcare, child and maternal health, microfinance, and child protection. His past work also includes supporting government-funded programs and work in particular with the UN agencies, such as UNHCR, UNICEF and UNFPA. Lastly, I want to introduce your moderator for today, Mej Bendui, who is a Senior Associate Director at APCO Worldwide. She specializes in the intersection between social impact and social justice. 
Prior to APCO, Mesh worked at Zillow, building out their DEI strategy and working at Starbucks on their bold commitment to the refugee hiring initiative. Mej speaks Arabic, English, and French, and I'm proud to say that she's been part of Global Washington for the past several years and on our planning committee for our Global Washington conference. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Mej to kick off our conversation. Thank you, Kristen. And in fact, I was an intern when Global Washington first started, so it's so it's been a very long time. Thanks so much for the introductions and thank you to our panel panelists for being here. Um, super thrilled to have this conversation with you all and I know everyone is um, excited to hear from you. So I'll kick us off with the first question. Maybe Laura, you're on my uh, screen. You're the first on my screen. So maybe I'll ask, uh, it's directed at all of you, but we'll start with you. Um, can you tell us how does the Mona Foundation define quality education? Sure, it's such a great question, and I'm so happy to be here with all of you, and thank you to Global Washington for organizing the event and inviting us uh, all here for this important discussion. Um, maybe just most succinctly, I could say that, you know, at Mona Foundation, we define quality education as empowering students to realize their full humanity. And this means empowering students with the knowledge, the qualities and skills that they need to improve their life outcomes, as well as to contribute to the social good. So to pursue their own dreams and aspirations, but to consider these in light of how they can make a difference in the life of their family and their neighbors and their community and so on. We know that education is a powerful driver of development and you know, the World Bank talks about it we, as one of the strongest instruments for reducing poverty and improving health, gender equality, peace and stability, you know, has broad implications. So when we think about defining the quality, what quality education is, we have to think of it in terms of these outcomes. What is the quality of education that will uh, drive these outcomes? And so the question there really becomes like, well, so then what does Qual what quality of education builds capacity in people towards this outcome, right? What does this look like? So we could think first of all about, well, does the quality of education, of course, would have to build competency and understanding in terms of academics um, for the students as they progress from grade to grade. Um, unfortunately, a large proportion of children in school right now are not actually acquiring the fundamental skills. Um, the World Bank has in this concept of learning poverty identified that somewhere between 53 and 80% of children in low and middle income countries cannot read or write, read or understand a simple text um, by the time they finish primary school. Mm -hmm. um, so certainly that is a huge issue um, when it comes, comes to thinking about quality education. It also points to the importance of training, the importance of teacher training, right, which is one of Mona's programs components. Quality education also uh, has to include not only academics and the arts, though, um, we see that it really needs to also teach lessons of equality of ethics and service alongside academics. Um, when there, when these are all combined, when you have academics and character development and service combined, then education has uh, creates and raises up very capable, very altruistic, very ethical uh, young people who are able not only to improve their own lives, but are also very eager to become a source of social good, um, helping better their families and communities. 
but that type of positive social change, which we're seeing is, you know, that's quality education, um, requires education to support students to develop their moral capabilities um, and to integrate service in uh, to others as a way of life. Um, so it's it actually education is a quality education is far more than academics. We need to look at it in terms of very holistic ways. And I think we're seeing Mona's grassroots partners leading this transformation in a number of ways. That's amazing. Thank you so much for that. And we also, if we learned anything is that the past couple of years have altered things dr drastically. Yeah. Um, Alice, can you uh, tell us how does your organization define quality education? Thank you. I'm honored to be here with Global Washington and seeing you guys' faces. Equality education is one that focuses on the whole child, the social, emotional, mental, physical, and cognitive development of each child, regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, or geographic location. Equality education is supported by three key pillars, ensuring access to quality teacher, providing use of quality, learning tools, and professional development, and the establishment of safe and supportive quality learning environments. As you are aware that I was born in Uganda, raised in Uganda, we still have a very, very poor quality education in rural community in Northern Uganda. You find school in that community, kids cannot finish even fifth grade. A lot of children drop out from school. Why? Because of lack of quality education. And due to poverty in the community, when you are poor, you cannot support your family. And mostly back home in Uganda, you have at least to have money, source of income, so you will be able to put your kid in private school. That one, your child is going to gain quality education because they've got quality teacher. So these poor children coming from poor community, they're not able to achieve that goal to be in that private school. So how can we address this issue to support this poor family, poor community? Poor children. As I'm talking right now, three days ago, we had heavy rain. The local school in that very poor community where I came from collapsed. Mm. It's down to heart. So right now I need to raise money to build it. They just sent me the picture. Mm. In that school, we're not even let the kids go anywhere. How can we help this community? So poor quality, the children have no hope. But good education comes from quality environment. Mm -hmm. yeah. Poor environment, children have no hope, no future for them because they cannot go to any school. That school has to be within the local community, the poor community. Because I witnessed it and it's still happening after now. So we all have to address the issue. How can we make this poverty, community, the children can achieve better education and see the light in their future. 
Alice, I love that. And I, I love that you touched on the issue of, of access, right? Like who has access to quality education? It's when you go to private school and not, 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 not everyone obviously has access to that. Um, Shoshana, I'm, I'm curious how, how ACE defines um, quality education. Yeah, I think uh, for us, we really look at outcomes from education and really outcomes on the life path of the child. And, and there's basically two pieces there. One, are we changing the life trajectory of the child in terms of the outcome that they can expect? You know, is it that they're going to continue to live in a rural area and be in subsistence agriculture? Are they going to be able to have, uh, you know, a more skilled job in terms of a vocation? Are they going to be able to have higher education, whether that's progressing from primary to, to secondary or even on to post-secondary school? So, you know, what's that life trajectory that they're on and are we changing that trajectory? And then, and then secondly, are we advancing them along that trajectory in a, in a particular way? And I, I really agree with Alice that, um, you know, basic access to a functional school is the minimum. And there's this tension between, you know, are we bringing people up to kind of a minimum location or are we pushing the ceiling and really elevating the, the upper echelon of, of opportunity? And there's a real tension there because we have limited resources. Um, and are you gonna invest, you know, for example, in students who have the opportunity to go to university at you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars a year. Are you going to invest in primary school education and ensure that young children have basic literacy and numeracy? They can read, they can write, they can do basic math, and have the skills to function in their life. And and I think just want to acknowledge that there's tension in those things, and there's trade-offs. And because the need is so great, even um, a well-financed organization is not going to be able to meet all of those needs. I think the other thing that we really like to distinguish between is between credentialing, which is basically the piece of paper that acknowledges that you have a certain level of education and gives you permission to a certain level of job versus the, the skills and the attributes that young people need to succeed. And, and I think um, those are not just professional skills, but they're also life skills and attitudes and habits of, of um, personality and behavior that you know, are demonstrated to help children succeed. And, and for me, one of the real, um, again, tensions there is, is agency and empowerment of children. Um, and, and frequently, you know, when you're trying to just get basic education to be functional, you're looking at rote memorization, you're hewing very strictly to a curriculum, uh, you're really focused on your pass rates for children. And so children are not given the opportunity to be self-responsible and to be self-reliant. And yet we know that because there's so few formal job opportunities, there's so few slots for university, there's even so few children who progress from primary to secondary that those other personality attributes, you know, call it grit or whatever you want, are really important for success. Um, and so there's, you know, how do we have successful academic education, but ensure that there's actual life skills. Um, and in the areas that we work in, in Lusaka, Zambia, which are the poorest neighborhoods, you know, I hate to use the word slums, but they're the slums of Lusaka, we know that most children are not going to get formal employment and they have to have the life skills and the personality traits to succeed and survive in a very difficult um, 
you know, work environment and family environment. And so we, we need to combine that with, you know, a focus on academic excellence and performance. So that's, I love that. And if I'm hearing anything from the three of the three of you is, um, you know, you all talk about what is the environment, both from the quality of teachers to access, you know, and, and, and poverty, obviously that's environment also trajectory, like quality means how, how are children, youth being set up um, for success, right? Or, or not. Um, thank you for all for sharing that. Um, Shashan, while we're, you have the mic, I have a specific question to you. If you can tell us how ACES uh, uh, educational programs cater to some of the challenges that adolescent girl, girls face. And yeah. then what are some unique challenges and strengths of implementing such program in a country like Zambia. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think access and equal access for girls and young women is an imperative. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient to get parity of outcomes, and that's because of the day-to-day -day living conditions and responsibilities that girls, young girls, and adolescent girls have. Whether that's uh, household work, whether that's chores at home, whether that's childcare for younger siblings, um, and whether that's also the pressures that young girls uh, face in an educational institute, and particularly in government schools, you know, there's a sad but very well documented um, propensity for adolescent girls to face abuse or coercion or sexual harassment, even within the education system within the schools. And so we have to recognize that adolescent girls have different needs. You know, adolescent sexual reproductive health, I think is something that's absolutely essential for schools to be able to talk about and to discuss. Um, as much as we want to ignore it, we can't deny the fact that there is sexual behavior among teenagers in schools. And the, the real imbalance there is that oftentimes schools will, you know, kick a girl out if she becomes pregnant. You know, you rarely hear, I don't think I've ever heard of a teenage boy being kicked out of school because mm -hmm. he got a girl pregnant or engaged in yeah. sexual activity. And so one of the things that we do very practically with our secondary school in Lusaka is, you know, if a girl gets pregnant, which we do not want to happen, but she remains in school and she can bring her child to school and she can breastfeed the child there and have a safe space to be a student, to be a young woman who's trying to improve her education and maintain that life trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, and yet we acknowledge the fact that she's also a young mother and that she has a baby. So for me, this issue of adolescent sexual reproductive health really is something that schools at least need to be having an, an, an eyes wide open conversation about and to be including some kind of curriculum around those issues with both boys and girls. And, and as global youth culture, you know, from Facebook to TikTok explodes with the advent of cell phones, and this is no different than the US high school system, right? And all the same kinds of issues. Um, but I think that there is uh, less awareness and openness to the need to discuss some of those difficult issues in some of the communities that we work on. It's, it's um, either considered not a school issue or, or something that really can't be spoken about. So um, to me, that's just a really important way to expand our idea of what education means because the negative impacts of that on a young woman's life are, you know, can be dramatically negative. Um, 
And so it's really worth addressing to get ahead of it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for providing that. Um, Alice, if we all know anything is that the pandemic has changed all of us. We've all experienced challenges and we've all gone through that at the same time globally. But I'm curious to know what unique uh, challenges and needs that, that girls in Northern Uganda experienced since the pandemic. Ooh, yeah, big challenge in Northern Uganda, the teenagers, pregnancy. You know, in the Northern Uganda, you know, this epidemic, this pandemic really hits girls in incredibly unique way. While it is true that everyone has struggled with the fallout of this global pandemic, it has had more serious consequences on some of the most vulnerable populations. Unfortunately, adolescent girls have been among the most adversely affected and for some life has become nightmare. Pregnancy, teenage pregnancy and early marriage, it has been the most, most increase for these vulnerable girls. In Gulu, where I came from, Noya, as with many other districts in Uganda, COVID-19 has resulted in an increased rate of teenage pregnancy in order to gain basic necessity like sanitary parts. Girls have engaged in transactional sex with men who takes advantage of their need for money. Having been impregnated, this has not only ruined my future, but also the trust that my parents had in me, says a team Florence, who is facing a pregnancy at just the age of 12 years old. Now she finds herself out of school and afraid for our future. I think Florence is not alone in Amoro, Noya. Amoro and Kirgum district, that's also our neighboring district, close to where we can operate. There have been more than 1,943 teenage pregnancies during the two years lockdown, heading to the Biden. Many girls are left without a partner and find themselves having to be the breadwinners of their families. So these are team, the Florence, so only 12 years old. Wow. And the parents just send to go and sell local things like food, you know, to survive. So these girls was raped, their team, and this girl became pregnant. Instead of arresting this man, the family had to settle the issue and been given some money. It's, 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 it's a traditional thing, a cultural thing, okay? And being a woman, like we as ladies, as young girl at the age of 12, being raped and you settle the issue, no. The men have to be punished. Mm -hmm. It's true, it's very painful. I have the instant where in my organization, I have a lot of child mothers. I have a 13 years, the girl who had pregnant, became pregnant at the age of 13 years old. This year in January, she came to me with a baby. It was three months, but I was in Uganda. Okay, I came back uh, January 22nd and I'm going back July. She, the girl told me she has never been in school. So their parents are poor, three months old baby. 
she's now 14. So she's joined my team, the organization. So we give her vocational skill training in bakery and tailoring, and I provide everything for her, including I shall medical treatment. Mm -hmm. Why? I'm a woman. I'm a mother, I have four children. And you see the child like that. She's a child, she cannot support herself and she cannot support her baby. It's very challenging. So I really pray God, uh, what is happening with the poor community? Because this is also due of the poverty. Nothing much is poverty. Because when a child comes from a, a good family, from a good family, this child can give birth. They will put this child back to a good private school. That child will continue with our education. But a child who came from a poor family cannot support themselves and cannot support their children. So the only hope for them is either get opportunity with these old men, have sex and get them provided money to support themselves. It's very painful and disappointing for any parent whether you're a man, you have a daughter, mm -hmm. and you Absolutely. see your daughter going through that challenge. Nobody wants that. When you have a child, you pray God that this kid should achieve their goal yeah. if there's any possibility. Yeah. If they cannot go to university, okay, focus on skill training, provide for them. Yes, I'm doing for this local community. And it's a challenge. I need to join the hand with any many people who can want to partner with us and try to work with this community. Yeah. How can we address the issue? How can we leave this kid, this girl, from where they are? And what I'm doing right now, a kid who at least they join school a little bit, I put them from that local community in that school, I pick them in, I put it in private school, boarding school. It's expensive, but why? I want this girl to see the light on her face. And that's what I'm doing. For those who cannot start read, we are working with local community. We mentor them. We give them counseling that they can do something. If they feel they cannot study, we give them vocational skill. Whatever you want to do, try. If you can do it, that's better. So that they can have the hope for their future. They can do something. They can, uh, being with a training skill, you are able to do something a little bit and sell. As a woman, you don't go to sell yourself or become a prostitute so you can make money. No. So the big challenge we have in the Northern Uganda the incident of early childhood marriage is also on the rise as poverty caused by the pandemic has forced families to marry off their daughters to help alleviate financial burdens. In Guru, where I came from, and where district alone, at least 166 school age girls have been married off according to police reports in the two districts and the numbers are expected to be higher as many cases remain unreported by the local authorities. Mm -hmm. So the early marriage, one second, early marriage is a big challenge that because also the mothers formerly are very poor. So if I, my son, the man come want to marry my kid, okay, go and I get some money from that. That's heartbreaking. And to be honest, as a new parent, this hits home, this hits home, it's it just, I can't even begin to imagine um, these are very unique challenges. Thank you so much, Alice, for sharing. It's 
it's, it's hard to be doing the work you're doing. Laura, my, my next question is for you. Um, can you tell us a bit more about uh, EdTech and how you've seen your educational partners um, incorporate it in the past few years? Sure. Um, maybe just before getting to that question, just want to appreciate the comments both from Shoshan and Alice, um, the importance of looking at life outcomes of the students is key. And I would add that in addition to the life outcomes of the students, there's also the societal outcomes of the impact that those students have in the life of their families and communities. And so clearly education to be transformational, we need to be looking at those outcomes and, and working towards um, the change that we're, we're hoping to advance. Um, and as both for both the comments related to um, girls' education, I, okay, we, again, this, it's such a heartbreaking situation, Alice, that you're describing. And we know that this is the plight of girls in many, many, many places around the world. Um, we just visited um, a team from Mona just went to Guatemala to visit uh, an area uh, of uh, Guatemala in a school, the My Impact School, which is one of our newest partners, um, to learn about the experience there where they are addressing uh, the education and empowerment of girls um, in an indigenous-led uh, school. The teachers are, the, 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 or the administrators, the leadership team are indigenous Maya women. Uh, the teachers are as well, and it's serving indigenous Maya girls who are among the most marginalized um, you know, population in, in the Western hemisphere. And it was so enlightening. Well, one, interesting to hear the experience of these girls very similar to what you're sharing, you know, the, the lack of opportunity, the, the, the culture socially seeing them as really having no purpose other than to have babies, you know, and to take care of the house. And, and for the girls themselves to go from that stage, that way of being, or that way of thinking of themselves through an educational process to not only gain the academic knowledge and skills, but to begin to see themselves as worthy, you know, as being autonomous, uh, equal human beings, worthy of respect, um, able to explore their own aspirations and desires and then work towards those. As hard, it, it gives me hope, <laughs> you know, that we have a serious condition as far as the, the plight of many girls in this world, but there is also hope because we see in their program, for example, and in, and in other, the experience of other partners um, that Mona has around the world, that when education can address more holistically the life of the girl as you're trying, you know, describing also Alice, it can't just be about going to school and sitting in a classroom. There's so much more to that girl's life that needs to be addressed. Um, and it was so interesting in this particular school to see how they look at um, not only the academics, but culture and identity, the social emotional development of the girl and family engagement. So they also had significant uh, work that they were doing in uh, terms of engaging the parents and the brothers in these conversations around equality and the importance of girls' education and what that looks like. So uh, just wanted to, to connect on those couple of points. As far as ed tech, um, what I failed to mention maybe in my earlier answer is that 
you know, access to digital technology is really something that we are seeing as being so essential uh, these days to quality education. The pandemic certainly has awakened the world to the reality that access to digital technology is really a basic human right. It's not just something that's nice to have, it's actually a requirement uh, in order to build the connections and gain the knowledge and understanding uh, and make use of the tools and to expand access to education in ways that we really haven't dreamed of um, until the pandemic kind of forced us to consider it. And COVID pointed out this vast digital divide that exists between and within populations. We've seen it in the United States as well, and of course around the world, and the impact that a lack of access to technology has on educa educational opportunity. In Mona's experience, uh, the pandemic also pointed to the great potential that technology has to improve both the quality and the reach of education um, for both teachers and learners. One of our uh, partners, Dr. Irvashi Sani with Study Hall Educational Foundation in India uh, said that perhaps the greatest learning from this crisis, the pandemic, has been the realization that technology is a great tool that we have not leveraged enough. We must empower our teachers to reinvent their roles from that of transferring information to enabling learning through diverse high-tech and low-tech sources. So really to take advantage of all the tools that we have available to us. And it's quite striking actually that she says technology is a tool that we have not leveraged enough um, because actually her, her organization, Study Hall Educational Foundation, um, has had actually some considerable experience, maybe fairly visionary, you know, in terms of how technology can advance the quality and scope of uh, educational reach. Um, ed tech, just maybe to back up a little bit <laughs> for those who aren't familiar with this, this term, it's really just about using hardware, software, digital content, data, information systems, um, and education to support and enrich teaching and learning to improve the delivery of education. So it addresses both quality and access. So as an example um, from digital, uh, from Study Hall Educational Foundation, one of the initiatives um, that Mona supports in our partnership with them is called Digital Study Hall. And uh, this goes back to 2005. So that's what I'm saying. They were kind of visionary <laughs> in their approach here. Um, so 2005 and uh, study hall or chef for short envisioned improving the quality of education in India's slum and rural schools. And the concept was to use simple video technology and to video teachers in the best schools, um, the most well-trained giving lessons and then to provide those videotape lessons with uh, those that are in the rural schools that don't have those types of resources, right? So in collaboration with Microsoft Research India and Princeton University professor Randy Wang, Chef began this new initiative they called Digital Study Hall. They created these videos of live classroom sessions taught by the most best qualified teachers. They provided them free of charge to the teachers and students in poor rural schools and the quality of education of these students the ability of the teachers to provide quality education because they themselves were receiving training, um, all of it improved. And the videos were 
not the sole piece of it. It was also reinforced with ongoing teacher trainings um, so that the teachers could really adapt, adopt these best practices. When Mona began supporting Digital Study Hall just a few years later, um, they, were, they had just a small, a small collection of videos and were serving a small group of about 23 government schools in one state. And by about five years later, it had grown to serve nearly 800 schools. They now had over a thousand high quality video lessons, and now they were uploading them to YouTube to give greater wow. access, you know, to anyone who, who wanted access to them. And uh, by 2019, they had over 2000 videos, almost 90,000 subscribers on YouTube to their DSH online channel. So then when the pandemic hit in May, in May 2020, India went into lockdown, quickly closed all the schools, of course, like <laughs> it's a story everywhere. And so the students had no other way to continue learning and both teachers and students from not only just the one state where Chef is located, but now four Indian states, as well as Nepal and Bhutan flocked to the DSH platform for online education for the students. And they, that year grew to over 2 million unique wow. users. So it's really been an incredible story. And even if it just ended there, it would be an incredible story, right? Um, as far as access to quality education and quality teaching goes. Um, but they, they've adapted it even further and um, had previously started uh, a program of one-room schools to allow out-of-school children to be, come to these one-room schools and uh, help them learn so they could get up to grade level and transition to public schools. Well, again, during uh, COVID, that became even more applicable because now all the children were out of school, right? Mm -hmm. And they adapted this, their already strong connection to digital technology and this vast library they had of resources to now connect it to this program of one room schools out in the rural areas and trained um, some of their graduates to and gave them access to just cell phones to laptops that they could then take out and then use these lessons to, um, to provide a continuing education to students. So it's really, it's really remarkable. Um, and it's just one story I could go on and on. Yeah. I no, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing, Laura. And that's absolutely incredible. Like the power of technology. And, um, and, and again, like I, I keep hearing all of you say access to, 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 to technology or access to, you know, it's all, it's all intertwined and connected. Um, thank you for sharing that. And before we open it up to, uh, for Q and A, I'd love to hear, excuse me, from you all, um, you know, what your outlook on the future is and um, if you're optimistic for uh, the future education. Who wants to, who wants to take it? <laughs> yep. In the long term, the long, long term, I'm very optimistic. But oh, that's I, good. I would definitely echo Alice's comments that the uh, pandemic has been you know, a huge setback, um, especially for for poorer girls, rural girls, and adolescent girls um, in in Southern Africa. I know this is true in contacts mm -hmm. in the Horn of Africa. I know this is true, and I think these secondary impacts of first COVID and and now um, commodity issues around fertilizer and and oil are just having a devastating effects on on 
economies in Southern Africa. Tourism has essentially disappeared. Um, so that's a huge driver that's gone. You know, the cost of diesel and fuel has more than doubled. Uh, fertilizer has gone up multiples. And as schools closed, a huge number of adolescent girls returned home and either entered into early marriage or just had their flow of education disrupted. It's very hard to then return to school after six months or a year or more. And so I think that um, it's certainly not top of mind, uh, although I, um, WFP puts out some good numbers. I think they're estimating an additional 100 to 200 million people forced into extreme poverty yeah. uh, because of the, the global context. And it's really not on the radar of most people. Certainly, it's not top of headlines here in the U.S. Um, so in the short term, I'm... Um, less optimistic and significantly concerned about what that reality looks like, especially for rural areas that are, you know, dependent on subsistence agriculture. I think it's going to be a very, very, very hard uh, next couple of years. And, um, and that's discouraging. On the bright side, I do think there is, you know, with the SDGs, much more focus on education, on global education, on equity for women and girls. Um, on quality education, and I, I see that as being a really optimistic and important trend, um, and looking at building capacity of governments and systems change and bringing in technology. So the broad trend, I think I'm really encouraged about. I just think it's going to be going to have some difficult uh, stuff in the immediate near term. So that's where I'm at. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Alice? Yeah, future forward. What optimistic mainly I focus on the, the pregnancy girls. Teenage pregnancy is a complex phenomenon requiring multifaceted intervention. Strategies to tackle teenage pregnancy in Uganda should be designed and implemented, putting the adolescent and our needs at the center, while acknowledging the role of the health care system the school system, the community, and of adolescent peer groups, dynamics among them. Creating age-friendly dedicated service at village levels and hospitals along the continuum of care. For pre-pregnancy to attental visit, to birth and postnatal visit. Design and implement community and family based approach to address adolescent sexual, reproductive health needs and issues. Identify and train adolescent peer educators and counselors for adolescent counseling on sexual and reproductive health issues and health facilities and in the communities. Create a system in partnership with schools to monitor pregnant teenagers in order to make sure they receive assistance and they are assured education during and after pregnancy. Enrich students' curricula with educational activities on life orientation. Teenage pregnancy, HIV AIDS, sexually transmitted infections and family planning. Strengthen operational and impact research to better understand 
a social and health determinants of teenage pregnancy in impoverished community, which approach and intervention is effective to prevent and manage teenage pregnancy. So how can we hand the pregnancy for early age teenage girls? More counseling the girls, they need mentor for these girls. Let them know that if anybody tried like, okay, I know rape is different. A young child, 13 years old, 14, of course cannot. And also being also underage, you are 14, 15, it's very easy for men to lower you. So it's, it's really hard. So we need to try to continue talking to these girls, these young girls to know their body, that this is wrong. If somebody tried to lower you, try to touch you, say no, scream. And reproductive, you know, uh, I know like in the cultural, we African back home, normally like, they don't want to give uh, birth control for young girls, including myself. I have my girls, here. I have two girls, you know, one just finished college, one is still in college, you know. You know, we, we, we don't believe in birth control at the earliest uh, age, you know, because we say there's side effect for that. So in our culture, it's like, oh, when a child, a girl started using birth control at the early age, she will never give birth. So, you know, when you want to give birth, you're growing up, right? You're like, ah, no, you know, I want to have a child when I grow up, you know? So we need to try now to continue to encourage this young girl to know about their body and know that it's wrong. If any man comes close to you something, try to prove that you are a woman, you are important. Okay, nobody can use your body anyhow. Mm -hmm. Scream, mm -hmm. fight for yourself. Yes. So we need to encourage that. We need to work hard on that. And as we are trying to work out in our community back home. Alice, you're just, your words are just, ah, uh, so, um, yeah, absolutely powerful. Uh, Laura, are you hopeful? I am hopeful. <laughs> um, I, I have to agree that, you know, the immediate future is uh, our, our, our present, not let alone our immediate future, um, is, is fraught with considerable pain and suffering and difficulties. And we're only just uh, beginning to realize the impact of COVID, which we know has set, um, has set things back significantly. And so there's, you know, there's a lot that we need to take in and realize. And I don't certainly in my hopefulness, am not painting uh, a rosy picture or trying to gloss over the current circumstances at all. But I think in addition to the great challenges and difficulties that uh, we're currently presented with as a result of the impact of COVID, that it's also taught us a couple of things that I think will allow us to move forward more quickly you know, than we have uh, in the past. So for example, um, one of the things that COVID has taught us is that what impacts one impacts all, right? Mm -hmm. That we are really, a human family here and the more that we can collaborate and connect and share our learning and experience uh, and work together on what we are finding as best practices across countries and cultures that we can actually build back more quickly. Um, we don't have to all reinvent the wheel or start from ground zero and move forward. And so I see the, this increased understanding of the need for collaboration um, which has been heightened even further by the pandemic is can actually accelerate progress 
um, as we learn from our global experiences. And I think organizations like Global Washington, um, Catalyst 2030, the World Bank, everybody that is now really has been, but now even more so, I think we're seeing this opportunity to have conversations like this, to share our experience and learnings. And that as we strengthen this collaboration, um, that we can move forward more quickly. The other interesting piece about that is that as we share what we're learning, this greater, uh, we can see through these collaborations. And actually we see this in Mona Foundation. It's interesting because Mona Foundation, you know, is connected with uh, the way we, we operate is by partnering with local grassroots organizations that are working along education and gender equality uh, towards community transformation. And then we support them to continue to further scale and grow their efforts. Um, and so we have maybe a unique opportunity to see, to look across the planet and see in these various locations, what the organizations of the grassroots, the challenges they're facing, the practices they're adopting, the sex successes they're, uh, they're having, and can begin to see these patterns emerging um, or common indicators, you could call them, that are really, I, um, so when we think about how, do we, how, do, how does education promote gender equality, for example, we can look across the, our partners that are working uh, towards that effort and seeing that actually there are some very common uh, things that regardless of the country, the culture, that these specific things seem to be promoting and supporting uh, gender equality in educating girls, for example, around the world. So we don't all have to go figure those out, like hmm, maybe these are something we can all, you know, we can share that anyway. So this opportunity to really learn together, to draw on the key, the common indicators that uh, will hopefully surface more and more, the, the, the more our collaborations strengthen, um, does give me actually quite a bit of hope for the future. Um, and I can see that we're moving towards uh, an education uh, that is humanistic, it's holistic, technology-driven, and world-embracing. So I think it's a road, certainly, to get there, but I think we can look towards that, and it, for me, it certainly motivates um, everything we do day-to-day, -day, <laughs> you know, at Mona Foundation to keep it moving forward. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love the optimistic look. Um, we all need that, right? Like, we need optimism. Um, Many people talk about giving children education as a human right. Do you think this is the belief in the countries where you work? I think um, what this highlights for me is how rapidly cultures are changing and how much different areas in different countries are changing in terms of attitudes and knowledge and skills and behaviors. And so, you know, in Zambia or other places I work in Southern Africa or my previous work in Uganda in Gulu, so shout out to my Gulu people <laughs> there. Um, you know, there's a huge and rapid change of culture coming with social media, access to global information. And there's 100% people who would agree to the core of their body that education is a human right and they spend their lives working on those issues. And there's a huge group of people who, are not particularly aware of that idea nor interested in it and would be confused at that statement. And in many places that I work in, human rights alone are a contested reality, right? I mean, you can't be talking about abuse of adolescent girls 
and imagine that you have a, a culture that recognizes, you know, human rights in kind of a broad and deep practical way that's out there. And so I think that one of the things that this challenges us to think about is in a much more nuanced way, you know, about the different populations and cultures that we're working in. There's difference between urban and rural, between elite, middle class, and subsistence, between people whose parents are educated and are literate, and those whose parents are not literate, between places where children are an important source of household labor, and they're vital to the household economy, and education is a luxury, and places where children's education is seen as an economic investment as something that's going to support the family later on. And so I think we just need to develop this very kind of nuanced view and understanding all the pieces of that patchwork quilt. And what that means is that you don't, you don't have cookie cutter solutions, not only within a country, but even within a particular city or a particular district. And you really have to go deep and know the community that you're working in. And, and, and to me, that's one of the points of optimism is that when we do dig deep and we work in those communities, starting from what their values and what their culture is today, and really asking that question and trying to authentically listen and hear where are we starting from, whether it's relationships between men and women, whether it's the economic reality, then we then we can really build from there. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it, it really highlights the need to, to listen, to be analytical, and to understand what are the true lived values in that community um, as a place to build from, whether it's education as a human right or whether it's, yeah, that's a luxury and we can't afford it. You know, you have to understand where you're starting from in order to take the next step forward. Yeah, I would yeah agree with that completely, Shoshan. It, and I think that's one of the, the great benefits of working with grassroots led you know um, organizations because they are they embody the uh, and are the most familiar with whatever the social the, the culture and social um, context and understandings the values the issues uh, of that place and so to be able to begin a process of education with that understanding is essential i think because it varies around the world but in terms of uh, people thinking of whether or not education is a human right. Um, I think it's so telling to see the import, the shift in consciousness that comes about when even one person in a community begins this process of transformation that education brings to us. Um, we have, there's a story of one of our um, partners in India. So again, this is an area, especially with girls' education. So thinking about education as a girl's right maybe is even you know, below <laughs> the general conversation about as a human right. Um, but so even in that context, we've seen, for example, in this one rural village in India, where again, the girls never, uh, education is not considered a, a priority for girls. And um, that when a girl is given an opportunity, and maybe it's not everybody thinks this way at the beginning, right? But there will be some that are maybe outliers in general that can see in conversation, maybe or in conversation come to see the importance of education and then send their girls to school or to receive an education. We have a, a story of one young woman named Callie in this rural village in India who, uh, so she's a girl, she was rural, poor, and she also contracted polio when she was a young child. And so also 
and disabled, which really for a girl in India, that's like, that's it, that's the end of your life. But through education, she was able to learn to read and write. She was taught how to work as a tailor. She opened her own um, shops as a seamstress. She, with the money she earned, she put the children in her family through school and actually became a very well-respected woman of the community and used her experience and resources to then help uh, other women in the community to also gain this experience and education and start their own businesses. Uh, a team from Mona went to visit this village um, a few years later. And as they were you know, walking the streets, this uh, group of men started work walking towards them. And it was a little intimidating to see this group of you know, kind of husky guys and not sure what their intentions were. They were very serious. Well, it turns out that one of those men was Callie's father, and he had come to thank Mona Foundation for the opportunity their daughter had received, and which they never would have, you know, would never have considered previously doing that. But now eyes opened, and thus begins the transformation of a community and the other fathers and the brothers to begin seeing the value of women's education. They didn't know their daughters had these capabilities, right? So uh, it begins small, but I think this transformation in, in social consciousness of education as a human right, as real life examples come to light, uh, the awareness grows and hearts and minds change. Thank you for that. Thank you. Alice, you're, you're nodding, you're agreeing with everyone. Yeah, I'm agreeing in a way. Yeah, because with education, if I go back from in Africa, they look at traditionally before, like they believe that boys are the only level to have better education. So for you as a girl, you should just stay home, do the homework things. And when you turn 13, 14 and they marry you. So they believe that uh, it's not important for a girl to have education. So long time they believe that, not even long time, even like now they still believe that uh, men should be have better education than women, but I'm happy at least now, both parents can try to put, even if people were in a very rural community, very poor family, they put their kid in school, they pay like $5, you know, for my child, this, this remote, and you know, your child go nowhere anyway, you know, you raise like third, fourth grade, you drop out of school. So for, for education, the way I look at it, yes, uh, it, well, can say human rights, yeah, yeah, but uh, it depends on the culture. Right, right. Yeah. It depends on the culture. Yeah, the sample they have very strong culture. They believe, oh, this, 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 you know. But gradually, you know, girls, you know, are coming up. If there's an opportunity where you can put the girls in school, both girls and boys, because no, like what I'm doing right now, if I go to the remote area, the village, and I know the family, they are very poor. They're not able to put their kids to school. I'm not going to put pick one of the girls to put in school. I'll pick both of them. You know, and you find that some families have never been in school. As the instant I told you about the girl who like she, she had a child, of, she got pregnant at the age of 13 years old, but now the baby is okay, nice, six months. When I was home, three months, yeah. So, so, so really, she want to do something. So the brother who have never been to school, two brothers, that's really young. I put them in school. It's important for parents or for the guardian to put both uh, children in school, not only boys or not only girls. 
you know, they're all important, yeah. you know, it's very important for both children to go to school if you are able to put your kid to school. But the challenge is education is very important. But for those who are not able to put their kid in school, the kid remain in that local community, the very poor community, the, the real poverty, if I said poverty, you guys don't know it until you go and look with your eye and then you say, yeah, what is this? And then I will be sending you like the school which just collapsed. You know, you will see the, the, the thing I need to build it. You know, really this year I need to build that school. You know, it will not take it anywhere. You know, but because of the long walking distance, you are in a very remote area, remote, your home is deep inside, right? Now the school, how many miles from, uh, from your village there to walk all the way to the other school? And that is why they decide to have that local school in that community. So the kids should not walk that long distance. And the risk for girls too, you walk long distance, they rev you on the, the incident happen a lot. They rev you on the way. The incident happen a lot. And this is the reality, what is happening, you know? So at least when a school is being closed, so the community are there. You know, a kid school is over, you walk, you know, never would, you know, all, you know, it's okay. You see, so really, yeah, education, hmm, to be honest, but children are important to have education. Yeah. When you don't put a boy to school, they are the one become a gangster. In the village now, they come and they start robbing you, killing you, right? You know, they're not having any money. They don't have any money. So what do you want them to do? They will sneak at you, you're walking, boom. Like uh, Shannon has been in Gulu, so I, he knows a lot about uh, how they call it, the iron thing. Like, boom, you're walking, they put, they kid your back, and, you know, they want money from you. So if you can put all these kids, both boys and girls in school, those things are not going to happen because they're able to work to make money, right? So mm -hmm. the division I look is both important for both children. Absolutely, right? absolutely. Um, um, how do you gather input from the communities and teachers you work with and what have you learned from them? So in our um, yeah. in our primary school system, which is in, the, in Lusaka, we embed our primary schools in faith-based institutions within the communities themselves um, so that there's already a level of buy-in and trust from that community with that institution. And the parents are very engaged in the quality of that education because it's really theirs, it's not really ours. We're there to support, we provide books, we do teacher stipends, we train the teachers, but it's really the community's organization and the community's institution. And that's, that's vital for having accountability to the parents for that issue of quality. Whereas if sometimes with the government school, you know, is the teacher even there? Is the teacher there all the time? You know, have the books been provided? Parents don't feel like they have the same level of power to be able to hold that government institution accountable and say, look, we, we need these services. So working with a local community institution that already has a deep relationship because it's founded and based in that community really provides us um, a great way to ensure that there's feedback, that there's communication, that there's ownership, that there's uh, accountability. And as a result, our pass rates are way better. They're in the you know, 95, 98% rate for primary school versus you know, 60, 65% for the government schools you know, in the very similar neighborhoods. So I think 
it's important that you actually set up mechanisms that allow parents to have ownership of the quality of the education at the school and over their children's actual experience within that school. And I think one of the challenges is to do that when you have state-run institutions because it's such a top-down process that, you know, there's, it's kind of a take it or leave it proposition there. You know, one of the things that's really important for us is that our families are very poor and there's really a lack of adequate food and nutrition for the kids. So one of the great things that we heard from parents is we love it that you can take the kids during the day because that frees us up to do work and to be able to earn an income. But, you know, the big struggle is our kids don't have enough food. So we have a, a feeding program at our primary schools that just provides one meal a day. It's nutritionally supplemented. And this makes a huge difference, both in the education that the children are able to absorb because they're fed, they can focus and they can think. Um, and it's a huge uh, benefit to the family because their child is getting one solid meal a day. And then so that subs in a sense, by cost shifting, it subsidizes the food budget of that very poor family. Um, and it's also a huge incentive to participate and to show up and to go to class and to be in school for the kids. Um, so this is something that was really community driven. It was a community identified need. Uh, yes, it costs money, but it's not um, break, you know, break the bank expensive. Yeah. Um, you know, you're talking about May's meal with some nutritional supplements most of the time, but it has a huge positive impact. And that's the kind of thing that you know, we would not have done if the parents and the community members had not come forward and said, this is a real felt need yep. um, in, in our classroom. And because our teachers come from that community as well, they're not appointed and come from a different district, they're sourced from that community. It really helps all of that feedback and accountability carry on over time. And actually that goes back to your point about listening, right? Like listening is yeah. so important and that's how you... Um... Yeah, that's where it starts. Um, I'm mindful of the time, so I want to uh, ask a couple more questions. Um, Laura, this question is for you. Technology and education has come a long way. Today, there are foundations, nonprofits, and other agencies teaching young students how to code to develop softwares. It's truly amazing. However, not everyone in the same country and community has the same exposure. How do you suggest achieving equitable access? All right. Well, that's a small question to answer in three minutes, <laughs> two minutes, but it's it's an important question because I think that's really where we're at, right, is how do we take the beginning of what we're, we're learning and really help to scale it to reach many, 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 many more children. I can share the example of, um, well, I could say one, one thing just generally is that in order for organizations, educational initiatives at the grassroots level to be able to employ technology in this way requires an ongoing process of capacity building. So that the op like you can't just throw computers at people and go, oh, that's gonna solve the problem, right? The programs themselves at the grassroots need to have the capacity and have given some consideration and see the need and benefit for this. That said, um, one example, one of our uh, partners in ed educational initiatives is actually looking at uh, the process by which it uses uh, artificial intelligence and a program, software uh, program that they've developed called MindSpark. And our 
looking at ways of and considering ways to continually expand and deploy this software program in schools across a variety of settings um, to support uh, students to learn with understanding, right? So maybe their kids are in school, they're going grade to grade, but they're not actually, their learning level is not improving. Um, and so what they're doing then in partnership with a broad number of organizations, businesses, nonprofits, governments, and so on, are working to provide this software to students in schools so that as part of a lab there, working on this, working with this software to a baseline their current level of understanding and then through the MindSpark technology and software, incrementally assisting that student to advance in their learning. And this is something that uh, they've applied in many settings across India and now it, with Mona's support and also now um, beginning to try it out in uh, South Africa uh, to pilot it in South Africa communities. So there's many ways of doing it. Um, we need to look for opportunities to scale educational initiatives as one example. The other piece of it, though, is that it requires collaboration, right? I see this is a great part. This is a partnership of nonprofits, of governments, of businesses, of B Corps, of other foundations. That one, when when a local organization sees the opportunity or is presented with the opportunity, has the ability to take it and can begin to scale. So I think we're going to learn a lot about what that looks like in the coming years. Thank you for that, Laura. No Maj, I wanted to just follow up briefly on that yeah. um, question about the digital divide, and, and I'm, you know, ex as excited about anyone as the power for digital tools to be brought to the classroom, both for quality of education and also just for basic computer literacy um, and accessibility to knowledge. But I think particularly in, in Africa, um, there is a real and meaningful digital divide about close to 500 million people don't have access to electricity. Uh, rural electrification is, you know, um, very limited to non-existent. Uh, obviously, the cost of computers is meaningful, and the ability of teachers to use those devices um, in a way that actually assists with learning may be limited. Um, so I'm on the one hand, on uh, where it's able to happen, I think it's an incredibly powerful tool and it's really meaningful and, and a qualitative improvement. But I just think that we need to acknowledge that for many, many rural settings in Africa, that is not gonna be available anytime in the immediate future. Yeah. And you know, we need to focus on some of the basics of education, like uh, as Alice was saying, is there a building that hasn't collapsed from the monsoon? Is there an actual teacher there? Is there an actual book that follows a curriculum? Mm -hmm. Are boys and girls both in the classroom? Uh, can you teach basic literacy and numeracy? And so we, we have this tension, and I alluded it to it before, between you know, kind of pushing the front end forward as, as fast as you can, and really um, pushing all the opportunity and achievement you can, and yet still following up on the on the bottom side to make sure that these minimum standards are really there and and able yeah. to reach everyone. And I think the the rate of change is so dramatic between people who have access to you know an urban area to electricity, whose parents are educated and are really you know at par with what's going on globally. You, know, you can go to Kenya and you can go to Nairobi and you can have very talented people or you can go to Kigali, Rwanda, and you can have people that are 
you know, at a global level of ability. Yeah. And you can go and travel an hour into a rural area and see people who, you know, again, even basic primary school education is a real reach. And so I think we, there needs to be honesty about this tension. You know, everything that we're doing to push, you know, push the ceiling higher and raise the ceiling, you know, means also, but we can't forget about the floor and bringing up the floor behind. Yeah, and exactly. in a world with limited resources, you know, you, you have to be... Um, thoughtful about how you balance those very valid um, and real opportunities and needs, realizing that you, you can't do you can't do it all. Um, so anyway, thanks for that. I Let feel like we can I can I love the ceiling and floor analogy and kind of bridging that gap. I think it's 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 so important. And yeah, it's not and it's like I feel like there's not enough time where it kind of a, a, a program, but I I've I've learned so much and I feel like I can keep asking you all so many questions. Um, and we can get deeper and deeper into this. So thank you for allowing me the opportunity to be here and moderate this conversation. Um, I'll kick it over to Kristen to conclude our program. Thank you, Mesh. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Shoshone. Thank you, Laura. This has been so informative and also to see the passion that you all bring to your work. Education is such is at the intersection of so many other issues that we're all talking about. You can never look at it in isolation in a classroom. We just talked about how the, the community involvement, the parent involvement, and, and not just to start the educational process, but in the outcomes, right? And that that really shows the long-term outcomes of what we're all hoping. So with that, I want you to, to be aware that Global Washington will continue this conversation as we're looking at the intersections of all the sustainable development goals um, and, and looking at other issues. I've, you probably have heard this before, but there is no silver bullet to end poverty. But I've also heard if there was one, education would probably be the closest. I mean, the work that you all are doing is amazing. So um, we also wanted to post in the chat, Joel, my colleague posted, uh, Global Washington just produced an, an issue brief around this topic. We also, if you got our newsletter, there's profiles in there and other information. I encourage you to learn more about these organizations and the other Global Washington members um, in, the, in the months to come. So thank you all for spending time with us. Keep in touch with Global Washington and I hope you um, continue to do great work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye. As always, wonderful insights and inspiration from our members. Thank you again, Alice, Medge, Laura, and Shoshone. Next up, insights and inspiration from Lance Pierce, CEO of NetHope. For those of you unfamiliar with NetHope, they are a consortium of over 60 leading global nonprofits who partner with technology companies and funding partners to design, fund, implement, adapt, and scale innovative approaches to solve development, humanitarian, and conservation challenges. So uh, this is a situation that's only going to continue. We've been working collectively with uh, colleagues in industry 
and uh, with USAID and others to help launch something that we're calling the the uh, Global Humanitarian Information Sharing and Analysis Center, or ISAC, which is um, which will be sort of the next generation of our digital protection program, and that's really designed. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Goalmakers, a podcast about world affairs and global development. For more information about our thriving global development community, global news, and member community events, visit us at www.globalwa.org. Until next time, take care and be safe. Thank you.